What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 226. And boy, do we have a very interesting case to go over with you guys today. Really looking forward to talking about this one. This is a case unlike really any others out there. Yeah, I haven't. I, well, you never know. There's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head that we have covered that is similar to this case. I don't think so. I've never heard of anything like this before. This one is truly mm-hmm. just has some major twists to it. It does. Um, we're going to be covering the case of G.I. Joe Glinowitz, who was a police hero for many, many years, served in the military, and things in his life due to his actions started kind of going down a different road that did not end well. Yes. Uh, that's really all I can say without giving away yeah. sort of what, what happens. But it's mm-hmm. a it's a wild case for sure. Yeah, buckle in. There's a lot of twists here. Um, but first, we wanted to give you guys a couple announcements. Um, first of all, we wanted to give back this holiday season. So we decided that we are going to be matching all donations that you guys make to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the next, um, it's like a month and a half that we have, basically until the end of the year. Um, So if you would like to be part of that, we have a link in our description box and in our show notes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you use that link, we can track your donation and we will be matching it. Um, So yeah, we're really excited. We've already raised over 50,000. I think we're close to 60 now through merch and small business collabs. Um, so thank you to everyone who has participated in that. We are really hoping to make a big difference for NECMEC this year. We feel really good about supporting NECMEC because through the cases that we cover on the show, oftentimes NECMEC is often involved in those cases and we just know how important the work that they do is and they, you know, they always need more. They need more resources to put towards other cases out there. So mm-hmm. It's such an important cause to support, and we hope that you'll join us in donating to NECMEC. Again, we're going to match dollar for dollar. So at the end of the year, we'll tally it all up, and we'll make a, a donation to match what all of you out there donate to this amazing organization. Also, we still have NECMEC charity merch available at milehiremerch.com, and now is a great time to hop on over and check all that stuff out because almost everything on milehiremerch.com is going to be 25% off for Black Friday. We are so excited. I'm actually wearing one of our Mile Hire sweatshirts right now. This one is one of my favorites. It is so warm and cozy. And check out the back. It's one of the coolest <laughs> designs I think we've ever done. There you go. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you for modeling, Kendall. <laughs> You're welcome. If you want to see the designs in more detail <laughs> and- <laughs> So that you can actually see yeah. uh, which one you'd like. Again, that's malharmerch.com. We'll, we'll overlay a yeah. picture too. Okay. But yeah, now is a great time to pick up one of those charity items and also get yourself some of the rest of the merch for 25% off. Just a note, charity items are not on sale. Yes, Thank correct. you for specifying that. Yeah. Yep. And there's no code needed. Milehiremerch.com. Also, well, real quick, once these are gone, they're gone. We're not restocking. Yeah. I know we have restocked in the past. We are not doing that Mm-mm. with this collection. So once stuff is gone... Yeah, that's it. And you definitely want to head there as soon as possible because it's quite possible sizes and certain items are going to sell out at the beginning of the sale. So hop on it, ladies and gents. Also, uh, we just want to thank today's sponsors. We have StoryWorth, who is a new sponsor, Thrive Market, Rocket Money. I believe they're also a new sponsor. 
Yeah, yeah, relatively new. Simply Save and Masterclass, new sponsor. Love Masterclass. Thank you so much to our sponsors. And are you ready to just get into it here, Josh? I am. I am. This this case, I I feel a a bit of a personal connection to this one, which I'll which I'll tell you about here yeah. very shortly. But this this case is a very tragic case. I think I don't want that to get lost in all of this Mm-mm. because. At the end of the day, a family, you know, lost yeah. a father, a husband, um, mm-hmm. in in a very tragic way. So, I just want to point that out. But this case definitely is probably one that you have never heard of before. Mm-hmm. Most likely, I'm surprised too. It doesn't have as much coverage as you would think, because it's really, yeah, it's really just a wild story. It is. So yeah, we're gonna start with looking at the life of Charles Joseph. Glenowitz, which this whole case basically centers on. So Charles Joseph Glenowitz was born on August 25th, 1963 in Libertyville, Illinois, and he went by Joe for short. Growing up, Joe was known as a funny, friendly guy with a nice smile, and he was a military and police guy from the start. For high school, he attended Marmion Academy, an all-boys Catholic residential high school that was also a military school at the time. And after two years there, he transferred and graduated from Antioch Community College in 1981. After he graduated from high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. And during his career, Joe worked hard and he became a decorated soldier. He stayed there for about four years before he joined the Army Reserves and decided to become a police officer. Which is a pretty common thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of There's a lot of police officers out there that are in the uh, Army Reserves or just mm-hmm. uh, different reserves in the armed forces because you know the two really tie together really well and a lot of times police departments have you know they build it in so that if you do get called to go do something for the military that your job is you know safe when you come back there for you exactly Mm -hmm. and obviously the some of the experience and training you get in the military to the police force definitely crosses over and so it's a very natural career path there's definitely tons and tons of veterans in law enforcement um, for that very reason So Joe got a job as a police officer with the Fox Lake Police Department in 1985, and he truly loved his job as a police officer, and he loved to give back to his community. In fact, he was known as a man who was dedicated to his service. And Joe served in many different roles when he worked in the department. He worked as a canine officer, a field training officer, and even a member of the regional SWAT team. But the work he was most proud of was his work with the local youth. In 1987, Joe was actually made the head of the Fox Lake Youth Explorers Post. And the Police Explorers program, Josh can tell us a little bit more about that because he was actually in it. But it is for youth ages 14 to 21 who want to explore a career in law enforcement. So they sort of shadow and work directly with local police officers. Yeah, so I I can explain this from firsthand experience, actually. For those that didn't know, before I actually met Kendall, I was actually on... Uh, a direct path to be a police officer for the Aurora Police Department here in uh, the Denver metro area. And in high school, our SRO officers, so school resource officers here, and I think in most states they have uh, police officers at the high schools, but they uh, talked to me about joining this Explorers post. And I was very interested in law enforcement. And I'd actually gone on a couple ride alongs, just citizen ride alongs with some different departments. And they're like, this is really cool because, you know, as a high schooler, you can come in and basically start a police academy for it's kind of like a cadet program. 
So you come in and, you know, they do a background check, they interview you, and then basically they put you through a academy, which obviously, since I'm in high school, I can't go every day. So it was on the weekend. So for, gosh, probably like three or four months straight, every Saturday, I'd be, I'd be at the uh, police department basically doing an academy. And there's some pictures of me actually here um, <laughs> in uniform. And there's a couple of pictures from academy. And there's a, the last picture there is me working an air show as a police explorer. So basically, you're not a police officer, but you, you, you get uh, access to the police department, which is really cool. I had a badge. I could actually go mm -hmm. in and out of the police departments through uh, the secure entrances. I got to go in the evidence room. I got to go uh, to the jails. I got to go on all kinds of ride-alongs. I have tons of crazy stories, but it's really cool because it gives you an inside look at what it means to be a police officer. Is this something you really want to do? And they train you very much the same way that they train real police officers. So that the hope is, is that, you know, they bring the youth into this program and you spend five or six years in this program. And then what's cool is that if you decide that you want to actually become a police officer, they give you something called preference points. So if I were to apply for the Aurora Police Department after being in this program, I'd get preference points over other candidates. So the likeliness of me actually getting to become mm -hmm. an actual police officer would have been yeah. I mean, super, super high. And I was the top of my class too. So don't want to <laughs> brag, but I was the, um, there's one of the pictures I'll have to put in here is me giving a speech at our graduation. So there's like graduation and you give a speech and you learn all these different things. And so it's a, it's a really cool program. Honestly, like I had a, I had a really good experience in it. Yeah. You were so, so I was super into, into it. it, man. I was like, I, I was like, I told her, I was like, I'm going to be in the gang unit. I'm going to go work the mm -hmm. streets on, you know, in the middle of the night, taking down gang members and stuff. And, and, and it's, it's funny though, looking back, cause I think being young, as much as you do get exposed to some of that stuff, like it's obviously much, much different doing it day in, day out mm -hmm. and to be you know, in it versus the, the danger, the it. danger aspect of it never really hit me until after years later where I was like, damn, like I, I was potentially in a lot of danger situations just on those ride alongs mm -hmm. that I went on. But to imagine putting myself in harm's way for oftentimes just people that don't want to go back to prison is honestly what most officer involved shootings end up being is like people that have warrants don't want to go back to prison and they're willing mm -hmm. to, to fucking take your life. Yeah. And so I have a lot of, really I have a lot scary. of respect for, for police officers. Obviously I think over the course of the show, you know, we, we've definitely been pretty hard on them at times because there are bad apples, but yeah, a lot of bad apples, a lot of good apples, but yeah, a lot of bad ones. Well, and I think, I think a lot of it is like the culture of police departments. It's very much. And, and even in my experience with officers, it's very much kind of a, a club and, there is this like brothers in blue sort of attitude and protect each other at all costs. And sometimes that means uh, covering, covering up, covering up mm -hmm. potentially really dangerous things and, mm -hmm. you know, things they do to other people that a police officer should never do. You, you swear an oath to serve and protect the public at all costs. And, and some officers just don't take that seriously, but yeah, it's I crazy. definitely met a lot of good ones in there. Um, there's definitely mm -hmm. some good ones, some good skills. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in there. So Joe was, basically the explore post um advisor he ran the whole post he did the training so we would have real officers that would conduct the trainings for us mm -hmm. um it was it was really cool though you got to wear kind of a police uniform you learn all the radio stuff you learn the arrest techniques. i used to think it was so hot when you would wear your uniform <laughs> i know i remember there was a fourth of july where um the city of aurora did a fireworks show and i was out there and so the explorers they'd use you for like community service stuff mm -hmm. which is kind of cool you'd be in the community and 
I was running like traffic detail for for like parking and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember coming over to your house after and I was like wearing my gear and stuff. And you're like, ooh, <laughs> man in a uniform. Yeah, you almost got your first kiss that night. Could have. <laughs> Didn't Damn. go for it. Damn. Well, good thing it ended up in my favor though, huh? Yeah, he looks so cute and he's... I know, oh I'm so God. young. So I'm like 17 years old yeah, in these pictures. Right around the time we met. Yep, yep. How old do you have to be to um, join this? 14. 14? Yeah. You can start oh, really wow. young. Basically, now. freshman year of high school, you can join and then you can be through it all the way till 21, which is wow. 21 is the age that you have to be to become an actual police officer. How old do you have to be to do a ride along though? It's got to be a little older. Uh, I think with parent permission, it's like, it's like 14 or 15. Wow. But wow. yeah, I mean, I did some ride alongs that were pretty crazy and I saw some stuff for sure. But I think it's a good way to, I think anything with any career field, I think it's great when you can get into a program and experience mm -hmm. what your career is going to end up being like. So you can actually see firsthand people who do it professionally, what it's like, and also really find out if it's for you. Yeah. And ultimately I came to the decision um, that it just, I, I felt like I was capable of, of doing more and other things and, and just obviously my relationship was very important and it was just, you know, it wasn't the right fit, I think is is the right word. And but yeah, the Explorers program is a really cool program. I I actually was just looking back at a, at like the um some of the old pictures and there's a buddy of mine who I graduated with who's now an officer. Mm. He's out patrolling and stuff, wow. which is it's just kind of cool to see that, you know, some people end up doing that. A lot of people don't end up doing law enforcement after going through the program, but I did a ride along once. You did. And you said it was the most horrible boring, experience. boring experience. Yeah, not only was it boring, but I had a super racist cop and his racist buddy. Ew. And they were horrible. They were sexist, racist, oh everything, you name it. Terrible. That's Yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. There's would good ones and bad ones out there. Would have someone better. Probably would have, yeah, enjoyed it I'm a surprised. lot more. Because it sounded cool. I was so excited for it. I did it through my law class. I'm surprised because usually the way that those ride-alongs work is you put in the application and then basically the the sergeant for you know, that particular shift decides which officer you ride with. Mm. And a lot of times they try to put you with their, you know, their best officer, so to speak. So oh it's interesting God. that you end up getting. I had a terrible guy. Yeah. Yeah. He he brought us to the projects and he started just saying horrific things about all the people that live there. It was just. That's so disappointing. It was really bad. Did I you remember being so him? bummed out. <laughs> I should have. Did you report him? I should have serious. reported him. That's no, horrible. I didn't. I know it was horrible. Very sad. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Back to, back into, to Joe. Yes. So Joe was the head of the Explore Post. And he basically basically ran it from the beginning and made it how he wanted it to be. So as we go along, I'll point out some of the differences between his Explore Post versus mine and some of the others out there. Because he did things a little bit differently. And he took this kind of to the next level from what it's actually supposed to be. So for all of his hard work with the Explorers Post, Joe received all sorts of rewards and honors, and he led training events for Explorers like the Explorer SWAT course, the Sniper course, and the Explorer Basic Training Academy. One thing I wanted to point out, and you'll see this in lots of the pictures and videos of, of Joe with his Explorers, is they are all wearing um, military uniforms. They're not wearing police uniforms. Police don't wear combat boots and military um 
camouflage pants and jackets that to me right away was like mm. so there's kind of this stigma in the police like some guys from the military like gi joe here they try to translate this military experience to being a police officer and really you're working with civilians not working with other soldiers so some police some guys from the military wear combat boots and try to bring that like really aggressive like i'm this badass soldier to you know being a police officer and that's really not what what the actual police departments want you to do that's not a lot of police departments don't even let you wear combat boots and and military style uniforms and things like that Hmm. so it's interesting that he made his explorers basically look like they're training to join the army as opposed to a you know a police force for a small town yeah. It's just that that to me much. was a little a little much. Yeah. yeah. Joe mentored many young adults in the area and they looked up to him greatly. He was an influential figure in many of their lives. And one former youth explorer even said that Joe became a mentor and almost a father figure to hundreds of kids throughout the years. And 70 percent of the kids actually joined the police force or the military after training with Joe. It's really high. Yeah. Wow. And everyone in the community knew Joe. I mean, he was described as kind of a local celebrity almost. And everyone had some sort of interaction with Joe over the years or can remember him. It seems like a lot of people have stories. Um, And he was easy to spot because he actually drove around in a camo truck, big camo truck. What what is that, raised? Yeah, a lifted camo truck, yeah. Yeah, so he he stood out. And he was nicknamed G.I. Joe from his previous military service and his strong army guy looks. But he was still friendly and really kind to others, and he always was ready to lend a helping hand in his community. And as the years went on, Joe was promoted to sergeant, and later on, he was promoted to a lieutenant. Which is a pretty high rank within a police department. Mm -hmm. He also earned multiple police medals, including Medal of Valor. So Joe was really a hero in this community. In 1989, Joe married a woman named Melody Resseter. They had four sons, Joseph. Donald, or DJ for short, Jeffrey, and David. And everyone knew him as a great father and husband who loved his family dearly. Melody actually helped Joe out with the Explorers program a lot. She was sort of a mentor to the female Explorers. His brother Michael became a lieutenant in the Antioch Fire Department, and his son DJ joined the Army as well. Joe officially left the Army Reserves in 2007, but during his 26 years of service, he earned at least nine medals and badges for his hard work, courage, and dedication. He also earned a bachelor's and master's degree from Kaplan University. And in the future, he hoped to start a doctoral program at Capella University. Joe was set out to retire at the end of September 2015 after 30 years of police service. So now let's fast forward to the summer of 2015 because that's where some very, very major events happened. And it's important that we go back and give some context as well as to what the U.S. was like politically and culturally speaking. So during 2015, you'll probably remember that there was huge protests against police violence all over the country. The protests were a response to the deaths of multiple black Americans while in police custody, including Eric Harris, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, and unfortunately, many others. These demonstrations were associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, which had been growing in the United States. The movement began in the U.S. after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013, and in 2014, it became the rallying cry of famous demonstrations across the country, especially the Ferguson protests after the police shooting of Michael Brown. 
So as we all remember, these protests in 2014 really divided the country and political tensions continued to rise into 2015 and beyond. Now that people are protesting against police brutality so heavily, the public's outlook towards cops definitely shifted to a much more or much less favorable position. And there was a huge backlash from people who thought the protests were anti-police. So by this point, the whole reactionary Blue Lives Matter or Police Lives Matter movement had cropped up, and many people believe that the police were now under attack in America due to the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was a growing belief that it wasn't safe to be a cop anymore. The media was also sort of spreading this idea as well. But the idea that there was now a war on cops in America definitely became more popular after the events of September 1st, 2015, which takes us to that Tuesday morning, which this morning was supposed to be like any other for Joe Glenowitz. He stopped at a convenience store to buy cigarettes in the morning, just like he always did before starting his patrol shift. Then Joe made his way over to an abandoned cement plant off of Honing Road and sat there for about a half hour. And then at 7.52 a.m., he reported to dispatch that he saw two white men and a black man that he deemed suspicious at the cement plant. Dispatch asked Joe if he needed backup at that point, but Joe said no. And that was the only description of the suspects that Joe gave. Obviously, this is a very vague description with no other identifiable characteristics like possible age, build, height, or hairstyle. Then three minutes later, Joe reported that he was going to head to the nearby swampy area and approach the men. Dispatch asked if he needed a second unit, and Joe responded, okay, start sending somebody my way. Dispatch then ordered for another unit to head towards Joe's location. At 7.57 a.m., Joe radioed in his location again and said the suspects were now running towards the swamp. At 8 a.m., the backup unit arrived at Joe's location and the dispatcher and other units radioed Joe multiple times asking for a status. And this is when they got no response. So the second unit then called in for more backup and they started looking for Joe because obviously when Joe's not replying with his status, that's a major red flag to every other officer that he could potentially be in danger. They confirmed to dispatch that they made no contact with Joe and they tried his cell phone even and there was no answer. Plus there wasn't a trail of footsteps to follow so the officers walked deeper into the marshy woods looking for more clues. And that's when the officers heard the sound of a lone gunshot. They didn't hear signs of a struggle or anyone running but obviously when you hear a gunshot as a police officer you draw your weapon and you start going towards the sound. And then that's when the officers discovered something horrible. At 8.18 a.m., one of the units radioed in, officer down. To give you guys some better perspective on this very moment, I'm going to go ahead and play some of the radio traffic between dispatch and those officers. I'm off the gravel road that runs. So this is Joe. Goes in saying he is pursuing three suspicious individuals. So that's when those officers that were looking for Joe found Lieutenant Joe Glenowitz lying face down on the ground. He'd been shot dead. His face was scraped up and there was bruising to his head. 
The police told dispatch to spread the word that there were three armed and dangerous suspects on the loose. And obviously, when an officer is killed like this, everybody is out looking mm-hmm. for the suspects. I mean, they literally called the next town over. They get as much resources as possible to try and hunt down these killers. So all law enforcement officers from the nearby departments were then mobilized. The SWAT team was called in and more than 400 police officers come through the woods where Joe's body was found. And it was hot and super humid. So some of the officers were even passing out during this time. I mean, they're walking through swampy areas like mm-hmm. it's the middle of the day. It's not good. Um, but once it was dark, they used helicopters with thermal seeking devices to try and make sure there was no one in the area. And they searched for a total of 14 hours but found nothing. Which at this point, you're you're wondering how, you know, they're in this area that is an abandoned cement plant. You know, yeah. it's marshy. Yeah, there's some places to hide. But how did three mm-hmm. guys mm-hmm. virtually Disappear. just vanish yeah. from this area so quickly? Because, again, officers got there and heard the gunshot. Yeah. So if that's the case, then those guys. They've got to be close. Should have been caught. They would have been caught. Right. You would think at least you would think. So the area immediately flew into a frenzy as the police looked for the men. Schools even went on lockdown. Community members panicked and commuter trains stopped running. The schools in the area actually canceled classes the day after Joe was killed while the manhunt was still continuing. People even barricaded themselves in their houses because, again, there's a there's Mm -hmm. a cop killer or multiple cop killers on the loose. Joe's service weapon. So the, the handgun that he carried was not found for an hour, even though it was sitting only a few feet from his body. It was like three feet away. It was kind of, again, this is kind of a woodsy area, tall grass, things like that. So maybe that's why it was kind of hard to find. But also the other items that he carried on a service belt, like his radio, mace, and taser, were also found scattered in the marshy area near where his body was found. Which to me, I'm like, if you just killed someone, why would you not take those items with you? Right. And the gun. Mm-hmm. They're just going to leave everything scattered there? Like, and you're literally yeah. by a swamp, throw that into the swamp. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But in the moment, you know, law enforcement is seeing things one way, right? They're yeah. seeing that, you know, because it's not out of the realm of possibility that somebody in a, in a quick, you know, sort of confrontation, you know, t- didn't see his gun or maybe the gun flew off of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, they don't know, you know, what gun killed him. So it's possible that... Right. Maybe he Joe got shot, and why would they take the gun if if the killer never used his gun? You know, obviously there's the thought that maybe there was a tussle, and he, you know, sometimes suspects grab for uh, the officer's weapon, but in this case, I, I think it was just like it seemed like based on where his items were that there was potentially a struggle, mm-hmm. and so I think kind of the you know your thought is why wouldn't if somebody did struggle with him and then ultimately shot him with his service weapon why didn't they try to hide it or something like that but it's also possible he was shot by somebody who's already armed potentially yeah my thought was like if they're you know if they are tussling and there's some sort of evidence on those pieces that would perhaps try and get rid of them but yeah i mean it could have happened so fast that they didn't even have a chance to one yeah exactly i mean they probably if you know there was this exchange that happened you know they want to get out of the area as quickly as possible they're not going to go like try to like hide all of joe's stuff after they just killed him so george falanco who is the head of the lake county major crimes task force was named the lead investigator on this case and agents from the fbi atf and the u.s marshal service all joined the investigation 
And after the news about Joe broke, the community definitely went into a state of mourning because Joe, like we said, was a beloved cop and his death was just unimaginable for many people. He was the first Fox Lake cop to be killed in the line of duty and it was truly a tragic loss for the community. Illinois governor ordered all the flags in the state to be lowered to half mast in honor of Joe and people from all over the country sent their prayers and condolences to the family and community of Fox Lake. And the Chicago Bears even dedicated a preseason game to G.I. Joe. And even though whoever did this was still on the loose, the public still wanted to have a vigil for Joe the next day, and about 1,200 people showed up for this vigil. I was watching this one clip, and it's of the mayor. His name is Donnie Schmidt, and he spoke and said, quote, when they cut him, he bled blue, which I feel like just encapsulates what a dedicated yeah, that's a good word member right. yeah, exactly. police department he was mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i mean he was like mm-hmm. the hero there i mean yeah and everyone just felt so you know heartbroken for all his kids and his wife who were just devastated and just yeah. never really thought that this could happen to joe it seemed like many members of the community were totally shocked that him of all people yeah would have yeah. been killed right for such a experienced officer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to end up in that situation in the first place like i I think i think there is definitely some thoughts going on of like why would he pursue three three suspects like a lot of times you got to kind of calculate like the risk the risk if you go after three people you're outnumbered for one and you're in an area where it's going to be difficult to find you and Mm -hmm. help is going to be farther away an experienced officer i feel like would potentially hang back that's kind of what and people seem wait to be for thinking. backup yeah and the other thing too that's kind of interesting is that fox lake had it had a service member you know had it had a police officer be killed in line of duty ever yeah and joe was the first one yeah. like it's just such a shock to everybody that out of all everybody that i mean if you look at statistics of fallen officers a lot of times it's it ends up being officers that are newer to the job mm-hmm. like if you look at um just which is just unfortunate because it's your, yeah. your lack of experience there and a lot of mm-hmm. situations could put you in harm's way and so i think everybody's like especially his coworkers or colleagues are like what? wow yeah joe like yeah gi joe, joe literally the guy who's been mm-hmm. you know on all these tours and military experience like he's he's the first one to go like yeah it just didn't make sense and meanwhile, they're still looking for these guys who apparently killed him, and they weren't having any luck. None of the three suspects were turning up, and it would be hard for police to find the suspects if they were hiding out, because Fox Lake is part of the Northeast Illinois Chain O' Lakes region, and it's a popular weekend destination for people in Chicago and Milwaukee. And at the time, the population of Fox Lake was only about 10,000 people, so lots of people have weekend or summer homes in that area. And everyone is big on boats there, locals included. So that means there were a lot of vacant homes and boats covered with tarps in that area. And these would be prime places for suspects to hide out, kind of like the Boston bomber. Right. And it would be difficult for police to search all of those areas. So authorities were scratching their heads trying to find these guys. That is until police got a call from a 30-year-old woman named Kristen Kiefer. And she was a resident of the Chicago suburb Vernon Hills. Kristen was driving down Route 12 through the town of Volo on the night of the 2nd, one day after Joe's murder. For context, Volo is just south of Fox Lake. And around 9.30 p.m., Kristen called the police and told them a terrifying story. She claimed that she had been having car trouble, so she pulled off on the side of Route 12. 
But when she pulled over, she spotted two men, a white man and a black man, in a cornfield, walking towards her. Kristen told the dispatcher that the two men approached her and tried to steal her car. Then, when she told the suspects she would call the police, they ran away into the cornfield. The police immediately rushed to the scene and set up a perimeter around the area, and they believed that the two men were suspects in Joe's murder. So, of course, they threw a ton of resources into this search. Almost 100 police officers, 11 search dogs, and three air units. And they searched for these suspects for five hours, but they found nothing. And it turns out Kristen's story was a complete lie. She admitted to police that she made the whole thing up to get attention from the family that she nannied for. What? Yeah, isn't that oh great? Oh my God. So now the investigation was back to square one. What a wait. What is wrong with people um, that they send police on wild stupid, goose chases? Dude. The other thing I want to mention too is that like prior to this, they had so many resources there that they had what they call a kill zone set up around Fox Lake. Like they literally had the entire community surrounded. So the difficulty for these three individuals to escape is that the chances would be very, very slim because mm-hmm. they literally had this thing yeah. surrounded. And there, I, I mean, the response was just a whole nother level. I mean, there's so many resources put into this. At one point, there was another lead that seemed promising. FBI Quantico believed that they had found three suspects on various cameras. However, once the men were identified, all three of them had strong alibis. They discovered that they were on video at an ATM withdrawing money to go to a restaurant and get breakfast. They also did a full lineup with the waitress and she identified all three men. They also had a credit card receipt from breakfast. So what investigators thought could be a huge lead ended up being nothing once again. On September 4th, a $50,000 reward was posted for anyone who could give investigators information that would lead to an arrest and conviction of Joe's killers. And Joe became a nationally recognized hero, and his funeral definitely reflected just how much people wanted to show their support for Joe, his family, and police officers everywhere. So then on September 7th, Joe was given a televised funeral with full military honors at his former high school in Antioch. The funeral procession was an 18-mile-long line of police vehicles. There were even six or seven helicopters and even a plane that flew in formation over the funeral. The former Illinois governor, Bruce Rauner, and other notable public officials came to express their condolences. Police officers from all over the country showed up to pay their respects at the funeral, flying in all the way from places like Detroit, New York, and even Las Vegas. Over 5,000 people showed up for the memorial that day, Those who weren't at the massive funeral lined the streets to honor Joe's memory. Some local residents even lined up their boats on the lake while the procession went by. Obviously, this was an incredible amount of support. It was one fit for a brave, dedicated man like Joe. We've got a clip of Joe's family and colleagues actually speaking at his funeral. He was the kind of man that in the face of danger would run towards it while others ran away. His dedication was unshakable and his course was unwavering. Joe and Mel have been in my family and the village of Fox Lake since 1985. They're our family. Today, you're the nation's family. When we were growing up, we all knew Joe was a hero. But now, the nation knows he's a hero. Tons of people held American flags, thin blue line flags, and signs expressing their gratitude for Joe. And a ton of people held signs that had pro-police messaging, like Blue Lives Matter, 
Police Lives Matter and Back the Blue. People started to blame Joe's death on the Black Lives Matter movement. The war on cops line was really big for media pundits at the time, and they wasted no time in citing Joe's death as evidence of this. When talking about Joe, they also usually pointed out to the August 28th shooting of Darren Goforth, which was a deputy in Houston. People across the nation were concerned that Joe's death was another tragic piece of evidence that there was an all-out war on cops that would only get worse. One Fox News commentator tweeted, Tell me again, it is an open season on cops. Hashtag Blue Lives Matter, hashtag All Lives Matter. Joe's wife, Melody, herself went on Crime Watch Daily and actually accused President Barack Obama of ignoring her husband's murder. She also implied that Joe's death was connected to the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's why Obama was staying silent and didn't reach out to the family. But of course, at this point, they had no evidence of that. I mean, it was really, there was nothing backing that up. No, well, they haven't even found who right. who so, actually killed Joe yet. Yeah. So it's just baseless accusations at this point. But by the time 2015 ended, the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting release showed that it was actually the second safest year to be a cop in decades. But anyway, that's just, you know, the facts. But about a week after Joe's death, on September 9th, the coroner, Thomas Rudd, reported that Joe died from a single fatal gunshot wound to the torso. At that time, though, he couldn't determine whether or not Joe died by accident, homicide, or suicide but he was leaning towards homicide. Still, the coroner couldn't piece together how anyone could have gotten close enough to Joe to kill him. Joe was a fit army man who was trained to kill, and he probably would have taken someone down with him. In the coroner's words, Joe's going to rip out the guy's eyes or his throat. The coroner's comments made the lead investigator and other cops very angry. They publicly bashed him for releasing those details about Joe's death, and they said his actions were inappropriate and completely unprofessional. When the autopsy was conducted, it also showed that Joe was shot twice. The first shot hit Joe's right chest, but the bullet was stopped by his bulletproof vest and cell phone. The second shot, though, was fatal. It hit Joe's left chest two inches under the upper collar of his bulletproof vest. And this shot was fired from above the vest in a downward direction. At the time, the coroner wasn't saying it publicly, but this was why he had hang-ups about immediately labeling Joe's death a homicide. He knew, that there were, he knew that there were a lot of emotions at play in the situation, and the task force was really pushing the widely held belief that Joe was murdered. But the fatal shot really baffled the county coroner. He didn't know how a suspect could have gotten close enough to shoot a trained cop, especially someone like G.I. Joe. Plus, Joe had no defensive wounds on him. He only had the scratches and bruising to his face, and his uniform was oddly clean and tidy, which is very rare in situations when officers have to, you know, get physical with somebody or there's a struggle of some sort. I mean, those uniforms come untucked so quick. Um, and I mean, I've worn bulletproof vests before, and just that having that heavy plate mm-hmm. on you, like if you start moving around, it's going to start pulling your Point shirt fabric. out from underneath your belt. So it was really strange that Joe looked as good as he did when it comes to his uniform the fact it was so clean and mm-hmm. tucked in still if he had actually just been through the fight of his life there was also just a little bit of mud on his knees then on september 11th a former chicago police officer called up the coroner's office using star 67 which as we all know blocks out the caller id and he threatened to harm thomas george and other members of the task force unless thomas officially declared joe's death a suicide 
The police investigated and traced the number back to a retired Chicago cop named Joseph Battaglia. He was arrested and charged the next day. The coroner was saying that he needed more information from law enforcement in order to officially determine Joe's cause of death. Meanwhile, the police were saying that they were waiting on details from the coroner. So they were seemingly, you know, just going back and forth. Members of the local community couldn't imagine that Joe would commit suicide. It just didn't make sense. This case clearly looked like a murder. On September 16th, Joe's son Donald said that Joe never once had a single suicidal thought in his life. He and his family were upset and hurt by the suicide rumors, and they thought they were jeopardizing the investigation. The public was angry and skeptical when the rumors of suicide started flying, and Joe's widow Melody said that she believed wholeheartedly that Joe was murdered in the line of duty. She said, somebody that is going to kill themselves is not going to shoot themselves twice. I was watching this interview with Joe's son, DJ, and he talks about how his dad was recently applying for several different police chief positions at different departments and, you know, argued that if someone was going to be taking their life that, you know, why would they do this and still try to plan their future at the same time? Mm -hmm. Right. Because most of the times that just wouldn't make sense. But again, I mean, not in every situation where somebody commits suicide, does that happen where, yeah. you know, well, circumstances change. They're depressed and not, you know, planning their future at all. So, but yeah, it, it is definitely, definitely kind of weird. But the coroner hadn't been able to conclude a manner of death at this point. And that was creating some serious tension between his office and George Falenko's task force. The task force stated that they were going to continue investigating Joe's death as a homicide. However, George admitted that the investigators couldn't put suicide or accident off of the table until forensic tests came back and ruled those possibilities out. On September 21st, the police got back results from ballistics and gun residue tests, but they announced that these results didn't rule out or support any of the three causes of death that were possible. On October 1st, the investigators announced that Joe had been shot twice with his own weapon, and there were signs of a struggle at the scene. But privately, CSI investigators and even Fox Lake police officers had doubts about the scene because something just didn't look right from the start. Hundreds of people were questioned, detained, and even arrested in connection to this case. But none of them were found to have any connection to the case at all. Tons of people donated money to cover expenses for the family. They received over $500,000 in donations that went into over 20 different accounts. And police agencies from the Chicago suburbs spent over $300,000 investigating Joe's death. And over 196000 of that went towards overtime pay. Some officers were even given overtime pay to attend Joe's funeral. And since the funeral happened on Labor Day, some officers were paid double since they were working on a holiday. And taxpayers in those 50 suburbs would be footing the bill for the investigation. One official said that public safety is expensive, and there's no substitute for it. So it was worth it for all the taxpayers to pay to keep their communities safe. So that brings us to November 4th, about two months after Joe died. Investigators called a press conference with the findings of their investigation. And this was the bombshell that they dropped. Let's take a look. We're here this morning to wrap up the investigation into the death of Lieutenant Charles Joseph Glenowitz. This extensive investigation has concluded with an overwhelming amount of evidence that Glenowitz's death was a carefully staged suicide. We have determined this staged suicide was the end result of extensive criminal acts that Glenowitz had been committing. 
There are no winners here. Glenowitz committed the ultimate betrayal to the citizens he served and the entire law enforcement community. The facts of his actions prove he behaved for years in a manner completely contrary to the image he portrayed. I agree with the findings that this was a carefully staged suicide. So obviously that was totally shocking to most members yeah. of the community. If you watch the rest of this uh, press conference, like people are like yelling, There's, yeah. you know, all the reporters are asking a million questions and it's, yeah. it's a major shock. It was. And it turns out that Joe Glinowitz was definitely not the hero cop that he was portrayed to be. And as we said before, you know, everyone in the community loved Joe. Well, it turns out that that is not exactly true because Joe had indeed pissed off a lot of people and they disliked him for very good reason. And as for being an honest, hardworking cop with outstanding character, that wasn't true either. It turns out Joe was a crooked cop. And the list of his offenses is long, you guys. I mean, this was totally shocking. Yeah, Joe right. had sexual harassment complaints filed against him in 2000 by one of his subordinates, a woman named Denise Sharp Gertz. Denise said that Joe made lewd comments towards her, coerced her into performing sexual acts on five occasions, and he urinated in front of her. Joe pressured Denise into these acts by making indications that she needed to perform these sexual favors in order to keep her job. Denise pleaded with Joe that she wanted the sexual harassment to stop, but Joe continued to strongly suggest that Denise needed to perform these sexual favors in order to keep her job and move up the ranks. Denise reported Joe in 2000, and the police chief at the time, a man named Edward Garenston, suspended Joe for 30 days and ordered him to attend a treatment for sex addiction. From there, he returned to the force. Denise quit the Fox Lake Police Department in 2001, and she said not only was she a victim of Joe's sexual harassment, but the department continually discriminated against her on the basis of her gender. She filed a lawsuit against the police department, but it was dismissed. And in 2009, Joe's behavior had gotten so bad that 11 officers with the Fox Lake Police Department wrote an anonymous letter to the town's mayor. And Joe's behavior had gone unpunished for so long that it was starting to really lower the morale of the whole department, and they wanted Joe fired outright. And this really says a lot when you consider the whole blue wall of silence. This basically is a big unspoken rule that Josh kind of mentioned earlier in policing that cops don't rat on other cops. And if an officer sees another officer doing something unethical, illegal, or against procedure, they're supposed to keep their mouths shut. Which I just want to say, to clarify, this is the absolute opposite is taught to you during academy. Like, you, yeah. are, you are literally, like, we went through this even in the Explore Academy. Like, if you ever see somebody, you know, wearing a uniform or you're on a ride along with an officer and something, you know, something happens that you're you know, you feel uncomfortable with or you feel like is illegal in some way, like you are supposed to report that to their superior. Like that's that's what they at least say. But what actually happens is, yeah, there's like, you an know, spoken rule on top right, of that. Right. Between, there's, there's definitely yeah. like a, a brotherhood going on. And, and I mean, in not all cases do things mm -hmm. go, you know, behind this blue wall of silence. Sometimes things, you know, it gets sometimes. handled accordingly. But yeah. A lot of times, especially yeah. especially what what I've I've seen is like in smaller departments, it's a lot easier because a lot of times these guys have a lot of history with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been in the mm -hmm. department for 30 years. I mean, 
you're talking there's a seniority uh sort of thing with in within police departments where the longer you're in it the more untouchable you are sort of yeah. sort of thing so yeah. joe was in there a long time and so you know what are you going to go after the the top dog so to speak and yeah because whistleblower cops are you know who actually speak up are often punished by other officers right so if these cops cross the thin blue line they're often shunned and harassed and they also risk things like losing their pension losing their benefits and being forced into retirement so the threat of retaliation is very real in these situations the 11 officers that brought up the sexual harassment complaint from denise also revealed that Joe had been sexually harassing a dispatcher. There were also multiple instances where Joe was allegedly groping women's breasts at the department Christmas parties. The officers also wrote that the bouncers at local bars repeatedly complained about Joe's excessive drunkenness and belligerency. Other bouncers talked to Fox Lake officers and said that Joe would drink in the bars after hours and refuse to leave. Other cops would see Joe in the bars eating pizza and drinking while he was still on duty. That's Excellent. a big no-no. <laughs> yeah. They also saw him hanging out in places around the village with women who definitely were not his wife, So Melody. basically exploiting his power yeah, that he has. Totally. Yeah. And he also let some of the kids in the Explorers program have unsupervised access to the police department. He even gave them a chance to wear clothes labeled as police and let them drive police vehicles. Which is a major, nice. is super dangerous. Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? Why would you want to give kids who aren't actually police officers clothing that says police? Because guess what? You go out into, like, even just wearing a police explorer uniform, I would go out with officers on ride alongs. I'd go into 7 Eleven and, like, I would be treated just like a cop. Like, they'd give me the, the police officer 7 Eleven special for free. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, they give you, like, soda and, like, a hot dog or something like that. Um, but you're said explorer. Yeah, but that, but, but most people don't understand oh. what explorer means. So what? Oh. So to the public, what I looked like was an officer in training. Mm. So I'd go to a call, I'd go to a domestic disturbance, and I'd be standing there next to the officer, right, facing these people in the middle of a crisis, and they'd be looking at. The, I would just be standing there, like listening and watching. Wow. But that people don't. A lot of people don't know. Have ever heard of explorers before? Like police explorer. That seems like somebody who's actually trained to be a cop. So it's very dangerous to yeah. give them police, uh, official police attire to wear because people are going to believe that that's a real police officer. And why would you do that? Why would you take such a risk like that? Like, what's in it for Joe at that point? I just, I guess well, to feel like just, the cool guy. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. There's yeah. a power thing. Oh, yeah. I'm sure his Explorer Ugh. post was lit, man. I'm sure God. people loved his stuff because he was doing well, all kinds did. of cool stuff. A lot of them talked about how much they love Joe and how much they love the program and everything. But anyway, the list of issues with this guy goes on. Joe was also letting friends fill up their cars from village-owned gas pumps. Which, <laughs> yeah, that's an... So like a lot of cities, they have gas pumps for mm -hmm. all the city vehicles. So he was letting his friends like go yeah. in through an unauthorized area <laughs> to get gas from the city. Yeah, that's... Mm -hmm. Once he ran up a $300 tab at a Fox Lake tavern and then skipped out on the bill. Gotta love it. He also took his family on a road trip to Wisconsin in a squad car. Which I bet you anything, this this dude probably was like oh, speeding. Oh yeah, taking a whoop, yep. whoop, turn on the lights and go through stoplights and stuff. Like that's crazy. Oh, yeah. Side note: I see that all the time. Is that legal? Can you just do that as a cop? If they're, yeah. If, if you they're need on, to. well, if well, they're on their way to a call, yes. But yeah. But otherwise, if you're not going to a call, no, you have to abide by all the rules of the road. And obviously, people take advantage of that. I was gonna say, I see yeah. quite often like. 
they'll turn on their lights just to go through the intersection or something yeah. or whatever and then mm-hmm. turn them off and then just drive it like it doesn't seem as though they're urgent to get anywhere I've yeah always wondered, i've seen like, that is that too. just a fun little perk you have well yeah it's, it's yeah. not supposed to be but yes they do a lot of them do that i mean they it just because they're they're driving because you only can speed as an officer if you're going to a code three call like if you're going to a call it's like code three which means there's imminent danger mm-hmm. there's something very Life serious going on yeah. Where you go, that means you go lights and sirens. So you're going, you're blazing, going fast, which is a lot of fun, by the way. But <laughs> otherwise, if you're going to any other type of call, you're supposed to stay within the speed limit. Like, um, you know, and yes, you could probably get away with like going through an intersection like that and not get in trouble for that. But yeah, there's that. No, you definitely got to abide by the rules as an officer. You can't just like do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> So the officers tried bringing the complaints to the department chief, Michael Bayan, but felt like he wasn't really doing anything about it. They wrote, we can no longer stand by and watch Lieutenant Glenowitz violate the rules and regulations, policies and procedures and state statute and remain silent. You are a law enforcement officer. You are to abide by the laws yourself Uh. as well as enforce the laws. Personnel files from the department showed even more violations beginning early in his career. Joe received multiple suspensions during his career, it turns out. One night in 1988, around 1 a.m., a Lake County Sheriff's deputy found Joe passed out in the driver's seat of his truck. Joe's foot was on the gas and the engine was running full throttle. That night, Joe had drank six beers and had multiple shots. The deputy took him home and had the truck towed. That's a major... Yeah, I'll say. Major failure there on the deputy's part. You're Mm -hmm. absolutely supposed to be arresting him for probably DUI Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or DWI at that point. I want to rat out your fellow officer, though. Joe reported that the truck was stolen the next day because he didn't remember what happened to it. (laughs) No disciplinary action was taken. The report said that this incident was not the first time that something like this happened. And it turned out it wouldn't be the last either because later that year, Joe called into work drunk. He said that he couldn't make his shift because he had gone up to Wisconsin with his friends and had too much to drink before he was supposed to report for duty. The police chief wrote that Joe had said that he knew he had a drinking problem, but he was doing good. He just couldn't stop himself after one drink. The file also showed that Joe allegedly intimidated an emergency dispatcher back in 2003. He made a comment about putting bullets in her chest and came into the radio room with a shotgun two days later. And Joe told a supervisor that he was just making lighthearted comments about the Al Capone era in Fox Lake and that the gun was not loaded. What on earth? I know. That is just so out of line. Oh, my God. Joe was also repeatedly tardy and careless at work. He'd been suspended multiple times for these careless actions, but the behavior just seemed to continue. And that's because all of Joe's behavior seemed to be dealt with by nothing more than a slap on the wrist, if they were even addressed at all, which a lot of times they weren't. At the same time, Joe was receiving plenty of awards and recognition from officials in the federal, state, and local agencies for his work on the Explorers program. From the outside, Joe seemed to be a pillar of the community. But in the truth, he was hiding his unsavory activities from the community. During their investigation, the police recovered Joe's text messages and bank records from the past six months, and that revealed even more shocking crimes. He had tried to delete the text before his death, but obviously 
That does not mean the FBI can't get a hold of them. 6,500 pages recovered text. I'm surprised he didn't even realize that that was probably going to happen. Like, Come on, he must have known that. Really? He thought he was going to be able to just delete them? (laughs) One thing that I think is important to note is that the first shot that he did was basically at his phone. Mm, Convenient. Yeah, I think he... Was he trying to potentially, you know, destroy his phone with that shot? Maybe, but obviously he didn't do a very good job because they still recovered all the messages. And these text messages showed that at least two other people were directly involved in Joe's crimes. Police wouldn't say who at first, but we later find out that his wife, Melody, and his son, DJ, were involved. So that leads us to the Explorers Fund, a.k.a the money that's supposed to be used for the youth. Joe was known as the hero, leader of the Youth Explorers Post, but it turns out for the past seven years, Joe had been embezzling tens of thousands of dollars from the Explorer Post funds. Joe spent that stolen money on things like mortgage payments, gym memberships, travel, over 400 meals at restaurants. 400? Yeah. Oh my God. His morning coffees at Starbucks. And you're not going to believe this, porn. Love it. He was also giving out personal loans from that money to his friends. He was just spending tons of money. Stealing from children. Yeah. Excellent job supposed to go into, Well, that money is supposed to go into competitions, supposed to go into gear, things like that. Yeah. Um, it's for them. Right. Well, Joe took it as like, mainly, this is my thing. I think. Yeah. He was like, this is my program. I started this. I'm in charge of it. So I'm going to do, do this my way. So I'm going to steal money from the public. And from these children. Yeah. And, and, and spend it on porn. Right. I mean, I mean, I it's like mind blowing mm-hmm. that this actually happened. And never, probably never even thinking that this would, he probably thought this would never even come up that like eventually he would just retire and, you know, eventually somebody else How would take over and just be really sort of thought, buried. That's insane. So not only was he spending the money on personal things, but he was also spending huge amounts of money on the Explorers program itself. And like I mentioned at the beginning, he trained these kids way more than necessary. He basically made his own mini militia with these kids. He was also apparently forging signatures from the police chief to sign off on all these transactions, which is definitely uh, a crime. The embezzlement was probably the biggest reason that Joe decided to commit suicide. There was actually an audit of the Explorers program's finances coming up. And Joe was very worried that this audit would reveal all of his criminal activities because a woman by the name of Anne Marin was appointed as the Fox Lake Village Administrator in 2014. And this was actually a new position within the village. And Anne was the first person to hold it. And one of her tasks was to run audits of the village's divisions, which also happened to include the Explorers program. So when Anne Marin looked at the Explorer Fund's finances, certain things just didn't seem to add up. So she started asking questions about how the money in the Explorers post was actually being used. And since Joe was head of the program, she asked him for a full inventory of the money coming in and out of the fund, which is very routine stuff. You're supposed to keep track of all this. But when Joe found out that he was about to be audited, he panicked. He knew that Anne was going to expose his crimes. And in his text to others, Joe clearly knows his goose is about to be cooked. In a text to his son DJ, Joe wrote, quote, she hates me, hates the Explorer program, and is crawling up my ass. If she gets a hold of the old checking account, I'm pretty well fucked. In another set of texts to DJ, Joe appears pretty desperate to get some money paid back. 
he'd actually loaned DJ money taken out of the Explorers Fund to fix his truck. Joe told him, This situation right here would give her the means to crucify me if it were discovered. Joe also told DJ that if he were selected as the new chief of the Antioch Police Department, he'd have to turn the fund over to someone else so he'd be found out. He warned DJ, you are borrowing from that quote-unquote other account. When you get back, you'll have to start dumping money into that account or you'll be visiting me in jail. So Joe, by this point, had figured or shortly before the events sort of happened that he had to figure out a way to sort of make this whole thing and go away. But that just didn't end up happening. In late March of 2015, Joe texted someone in Fox Lake about the possibility of moving the Explorers Post out of the police department's jurisdiction. Instead, he would have a local Rotary Club or fire department sponsor it, which not not even a smart idea because how are you going to get access to police department if you're not a right. part of it? I mean, that, that would even work. It would be like a, the Boy Scouts at that point. But his thought was that at this point, the program would be out of Anne's control. He was trying to think of any way to get it out of her control or give her the ability to audit the department. He told that person that Anne was a power monger who wanted to control everything in the village. Joe had apparently talked about this possibility with Chief Michael Bayon. Joe told Melody if he set a retirement date or put it in his two weeks, the chief would agree to move the program. Joe had discussed the missing funds with both of them. He also discussed crazy plans to have the Anne problem taken care of. In a conversation with an unnamed woman, Joe asked her to set up a meeting with high-ranking members of a motorcycle gang. He planned to put a hit out on Anne and have one of those gang members kill her. The text says, close to entertaining a meeting with a mutual acquaintance of ours with the word white in their nickname, which white is a sort of a code name for a high-ranking gang member. But those plans somehow fell through. In May of 2015, the chief refused to move the post to the local American Legion, so Joe needed a different solution. That month, Joe texted DJ about possible solutions to their problem. DJ suggested setting Ann up to get a DUI. Great idea. Joe responded that he'd consider that as well as a bunch of other possible scenarios. And these are all in the text messages, people. Joe had also admitted that he had thought about planting something on Ann. Now, police actually found a bag of cocaine in Joe's desk during their investigation, and the cocaine wasn't connected to any recorded police seizures, so it may have just been some recreational cocaine that Joe had bought to plant on somebody, or maybe Joe was using himself. But they believed he might have planned to plant that cocaine on Ann and have her arrested. Joe even hinted at disposing of Ann's body in the nearby Volo Bog in a conversation with DJ. But despite Joe's efforts, it looked like the audit was still going to go forward. So the walls were really starting to close in on him, and Joe needed another way out. He believed the only way to stop the investigation and save him and his family's reputation was to kill himself. But he needed to make it look like a murder instead, so that he would go out like a hero killed in the line of duty. Joe's crimes would taint the legacy and hero persona that he had built for decades, He would almost certainly be prosecuted for embezzlement and he would become another instance of a crooked cop protected by the prestige of his badge. It would be a fate worse than death for him. Of course, if he simply killed himself, people would want to know why. So it would be better if he went out as a noble cop. And in that case, his family would be supported by police officers, their families, and their supporters all over the country. They would be well taken care of by the state and the local community, and his family would get hundreds of thousands of dollars in benefits since he was killed on the job. So Joe knew what he had to do. 
On the morning of August 31st, 2015, the day before Joe died, Anne asked Joe if he had a complete inventory for the Explorer post. Joe says yes, and Anne asked if Joe could give her the inventory at 2 p.m. that day. Again, Joe says yes. At 9.14 a.m. that day, Joe texted Chief Bayon and wrote, She has now demanded a complete inventory of the Explorer Central and a financial report, FML. Less than 24 hours later, Joe was dead. As you can imagine, the public was shocked at the revelations. Once the nation found out the truth, G.I. Joe became G.I. Joke, the shame of Fox Lake. The lead investigator told reporters that Joe committed the ultimate betrayal. Thousands of people had came out to show support for Joe and his family on the day of his funeral. Locals gave interviews to the news media telling them all about how Joe was an honorable cop. They put blue bulbs in their porch lights to honor his memory and tied blue ribbons on poles. Businesses and homes all over town put his photo on windows and yard signs. The community mourned, but it was all a lie. Everyone had been duped and people were furious. But some of them just couldn't let go of the man they knew as a hero. It was all too unbelievable. I think when you have an idea of who someone is so strongly, it's just almost impossible to accept that it was all a lie, that they're such a fraud. Yeah. It's probably like one of the hardest things anyone would have to deal with in life is like you see this person as Mm -hmm. one way and their actions from what you've seen add up to it. But then the double life thing is just, it's, it's a really hard one that behind the scenes are actually this bad guy. Especially a lot of the kids in this program. I mean, so many of them said, I still kind of look up to him in a lot of ways. Like I'll always have good memories, but you know, obviously his reputation and the image of who he was to them is just tarnished and Well, especially in this case where you're literally a law enforcement officer and you're literally a criminal behind the scenes. Like Mm -hmm. that's that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, especially with how bad everything that he did was and and so much variety of crime here. Well, and I think that really speaks to his character. I mean, when you have multiple, it wasn't just like he was using the Explorer funds incorrectly and is a money issue. It was sexual harassment it was the way he carried himself as of you know all these other things his drunkenness and mm-hmm. belligerency like all these different things it's just it's just crazy so here's some of the reactions from local officials and townspeople we have some some clips here how much did you donate it was somewhere between 50 and 100 lake county's top investigator not only donated to the family of disgraced cop lieutenant joe glinowitz but state's attorney mike nearheim played a key role at his funeral I was in the funeral procession, uh, which uh, there had to be 50,000 people from the community that came out and to support the lieutenant's family. You feel duped? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. And to see that outpouring of support uh, and then to see it shift to what it turned out to be, it was, uh, we're all disappointed. Among the contributors, village administrator and Marin. How much did you donate? I donated $100. Do you want your money back? No, I, I, right now that's not even a question on my mind. There are so many other things and other things that we are running around doing. It seems like you use lying and stealing, so why should people give their hard-earned money to help something that didn't end up being what we thought it was? Some signs once honoring Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz now show signs of disgust. Many who live in Fox Lake, who knew him, are grappling with the reality his was not a random death. It came out as a staged suicide, really 
gives me chills and it hurts me. It's hard to picture him doing that. You know, I wouldn't, you know, it almost seems like it isn't true. 17-year-old Noah Flores was a member of the Explorers program Glinowitz oversaw. Do you feel betrayed personally? No, I don't. Why not? Because he's helped me through numerous circumstances. Others feel differently. Going on for seven years, I don't understand why the village didn't know about it. At first, I didn't want to believe it. Says ex-police officer Jack Kilchinski, who spent the last month or so organizing this November 6th benefit for Glinowitz's family. A benefit now canceled. Cash and donated items like socks and Hawks tickets now being returned in light of this new information. If there was a reason like that, no, there probably shouldn't be a fundraiser. But sometimes people crack. Definitely seems like a lot of mixed reactions there. Yeah. You know, obviously p most people are... Mm -hmm. disappointed and upset angry yeah but i can see how it'd be hard to accept as it'd well it'd be very hard i mean it's 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 one of those things where it's like do you you know does it do his mistakes equal you know kind of erase all of the the good things that he might have done you know and all of the people that he may have helped and the explorers especially were all very close to him so i can see how it'd be very difficult to know what to feel after all this came out so as for the police chief, Michael Bayon, it seems like he had definitely let Joe off the hook for his behavior throughout the years. And from the messages, it seems like Michael might have had some sort of knowledge that an audit of the Explorers Fund would be very bad for the department. He obviously knew about the embezzlement. Chief Bayon announced his retirement in August, just a few days before Joe died. And he had already been placed on administrative leave before he announced his retirement. The leave was connected to a village investigation into a Fox Lake officer's handling of a public intoxication arrest, although this officer was not Joe. There were actually three men who were arrested on the day of Joe's staged murder, and they ended up filing a class action lawsuit against the Fox Lake Police Department. So many innocent people had been detained and questioned in the investigation, and the lawsuit alleged that the police did this even though they had reason to believe that Joe may not have been murdered. One of the three men was just walking along the woods by his house when he was arrested and held for several hours. The second man was leaving his home when police cuffed him. They tried to make him submit to gunshot residue tests and searched his house without a warrant. The third man was arrested and released 10 hours later. 70% of Lake County residents fit the vague description Joe gave, and even Fox Lake police responders noticed that the crime scene was off from the get-go. Plus, the department knew about Joe's previous misdeeds. Again, Joe texted Chief Bayan the day before his death, complaining about the audit and saying, fuck my life. Chief Bayan failed to tell investigators about this text immediately after Joe's death, and this could have given them a motive for why this would point to a suicide and not homicide. In the end, the coroner, Thomas Rudd, was vindicated. He believed that Fox Lake investigators knew Joe's death was a suicide from the start, and they were trying to engage in a cover-up. George Falenko, the lead investigator, came under heavy fire for how he handled the case, and he actually resigned six months after the investigation ended, although this was due to the fact that he turned 65, which was mandatory retirement age at his department. Ann Marin continued to serve as the Fox Lake Village manager until 2021. She actually had no idea that Joe hated her so much before the scandal broke. The news that he had been threatening her life came as a complete shock to her, as Joe had never gave her any direct sign that he had issues with her. We actually have a clip of Ann Marin reflecting on this case. Okay. No one was left unscathed, whether it was in Fox Lake, in the media, in the nation, 
Every police agency felt the impact of this and felt it terribly. Back in the day, it was declared there was a war on police. And the reason this became so big is everyone wanted to get together to support this officer and police departments around the nation. You know, those two months for me were the most stressful of my career. And I will tell you, I was threatened. Social media went ballistic. Uh, terrible things were said about me. I had elected officials and other employees come to me and say they were worried about my safety. Threatening phone calls were, you know, a daily occurrence. And I lived through that for two months until the day of vindication. And when that finally came, yes, there was relief. Yes, I got phone calls apologetically <laughs> saying we are very sorry. Um, uh, a thousand emails, letters, flowers. People were very supportive, so it turned it around for me. Um, it was a relief. It was a huge relief to me. I think to all the employees, I think to the village officials, too, that the truth finally came out. God, I'm so glad nothing ever happened I know. to her. Can you imagine, though? Mm, you're just trying to do your job. Terrible. And all of a sudden, you're like getting death threats mm -hmm. because you're being blamed for this officer. Because mm -hmm. he's afraid you might hold him accountable for his own bullshit. Absolutely insane. Unreal. So both Melody and DJ Glinowitz were investigated by police as well. Melody had her bank accounts frozen, which left all that donation money in limbo. Which was well over half a million dollars. Yeah. So that's a lot of money. A lot. DJ Glenowitz wasn't charged with anything in connection with the Explorers Fund. The police apparently didn't have enough evidence against him. But get this. Joe actually had an affair with a young woman named Katie Brown back in 2013. Katie Brown actually ended up marrying Joe's son, DJ, that year. Mm, fun family ties there. And the marriage was actually a sham wedding set up by Joe himself so that DJ could get extra military benefits. And he and Katie divorced after a year and a half of marriage, and they both denied all the allegations. The Army started its own investigation into the marriage to see if it was fraudulent. Katie Brown had actually been married before to a businessman, and he said that the marriage lasted three months, but he believed Katie only married him to take his money and then divorce him. In 2016, Melody Glenowitz was charged with 11 counts of conspiracy, unlawful use of charitable funds, and money laundering, and it was clear from the text messages that she knew Joe was taking money out of the Explorer's Fund. In one message, he informed her, use the Explorer account for the flight, $624.70. But she still pleaded not guilty and maintained her innocence. She was going to take the case to trial and fight the embezzlement charges. Melody was granted access to a personal bank account with over $33,000 in it. And some of that money came from private donations to Melody after her husband's death. And it also contained Joe's final paycheck from the police department. And after her arrest, Melody tried for years to get access to her husband's pension. Many of the people and businesses who donated money to the Glenowitz Family Fund all asked for their money back. So did many of the people who donated to the Explorer's Post. The people who donated to the Family Fund are probably out of luck. Those donations are considered private gifts, so the donors are not protected like they would be if they donated to an actual charity. So their money may never be returned. The people who donated to the Explorer's Post probably won't see that money either. The money is considered a gift too. So the Attorney General gives the money to a different cause that best serves the original charity's mission. 
The trial was delayed for six long years until it was finally set for February of 2022. But that month, Melody pled guilty to one felony count of deceptive practice to avoid going to trial. The prosecutor dropped all other charges in exchange for her guilty plea. Also, an appellate court ruled that Melody's texts with Joe were admissible in court, which was the prosecution's smoking gun. So that probably played a part in her decision. She was sentenced to 24 months of probation and 150 hours of community service in April of this year. A judge allowed Melody to be sentenced to the second chance probation program for first-time offenders. That means if she successfully completes the requirements, the conviction will be off of her record. Plus, she might be able to finally access her husband's pension, which has been very controversial. At her sentencing, Melody still maintained her innocence, even after she pled guilty. So let's hear some of her statement at her sentence hearing. You can hear in her own words why she thinks she's innocent and why she's just a victim in all of this. Didn't know my husband was commingling his own money into the Explorer account until he asked me to write a check back into the account. And I never knew the full amount that he was commingling until after his death. The one and only time I ever personally made a transaction on the Explorer account was at my husband's instructions to purchase an airline ticket to bring our son home for a funeral for a former Explorer program. I'd like to make it clear. I never took a cent from the Explorer fund, no matter what has been recorded. Life since my husband's death. And this prosecution has not only affected my life, but those of my children. All of us have been subjected to a litany of death threats. The media not only released our address and our phone number, but for good measure, they released my social security number and my driver's license number. Further, I received notification from my bank that they decided they were going to cancel my credit card because for them, doing business with me was a reputational risk to their company. But they took it further and they shut my savings and checking account down and then turned around and shut the savings accounts and checkings account down of all my children. And as hard as I've tried and I feel that more job applications than I can count. I'm still unable to obtain employment just because of my name. The worst is probably the continual desecration of my husband's grave. There have been many times that we arrive and everything is broken and strewn about. Perhaps people will disagree with how my husband managed finances, which is the crux of the matter here. And I will note there is a difference between malice and a lack of skill. But please, let his final resting place be a place to bring peace to his family and loved ones. Obviously, you can question what she knew and what she didn't know. I mean, how much of the truth is she actually telling? We won't know at the end of the day. But I can't help but feel some sympathy for her. Um, 
you know, it just seems like a lot of it she didn't know about. And for him to tarnish their whole family's reputation like that, it's just, it's sad. You know, I I feel bad for her in a way. Well, it's still her husband, her, as she said, her best friend. Yeah. It's obviously it's father. sad in that way too. You know, I mean, to deal with a, a loved one taking their own life is in any mm-hmm. circumstances is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously came as a major shock to them as well. Um, you know, it's not like as far as we know, they had any idea as that he far was, as we know that he was going to do this though. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any evidence to say that they had any idea was going to kill himself. No, I mean, at the um, end, she's really a victim of him as well. Yeah. He, he's the one, I mean, really to blame and, and all mm-hmm. of the, the pain that, Mm-hmm. she's now experiencing i mean i i do think it's crossing the line to go and desecrate someone's grave and things like that i think that's yeah messed up to go and it's unnecessary yeah to go especially and, with his kids to go and continue yeah. to do that like that's just painful to to the family i mean they've already lost lost him for you know mm-hmm. so why why do you need to go about doing that and mm-hmm. I, I don't know it's 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 really tough because it's like I mean, she obviously did know he was he, he wasn't from the program yeah i mean the money but the money thing is like it's embezzlement to me that's like is there's also a possibility that maybe he didn't really understand how the finances worked or maybe he didn't understand Mm. how that money should have been used there's a possibility that he wasn't i mean he's not a finance guy he just ran i think he knew by saying i mean how much trouble he knew he was gonna get in if they were audited he knew it wasn't he wasn't (laughs) i mean come on he fucking knew i i think he was more i think he was I don't even know if it was as much about the the money for because it's like he didn't do it like he yes he would have gotten in trouble would he he may you know obviously his reputation as a police officer would have been um definitely tarnished after that but like getting in trouble for embezzlement's not going to end your life as you know and like would it be enough reason to go but he knew take, everything else he did over the years was going to come out right well that's what I'm saying is I think it ultimately came down to all the text messages that he had yeah I think he knew that he was going to be you know, eventually they were going to investigate him and probably get those text messages Mm -hmm. and then find out that he was going to put out a hit on the the village administrator Mm -hmm. and, and just things were going to unravel, not to mention, you know, the people that had brought, you know, maybe he thought the the chief was going to go down as well and and Mm -hmm. just would open up all these different things. But yeah. And for the community, who apparently loves him so much to find out that he was driving drunk in his squad car, that he had sexually harassed other people. Um, I mean, there was so many things. There were so many things. Yeah, they did say his personnel file was super, super thick mm-hmm. with all, I mean, both accolades and He just knew it was going to come out that he wasn't was a who he portrayed himself as. Right. And, and that's a tough, I mean, for yeah. him, that would have been a maybe, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense in his case because he was so much about his image and who he portrayed mm-hmm. himself as. And I yeah. think that would have been, I don't know. He obviously couldn't yeah. see a life where he isn't that. Yeah. And, and how much, you know, did his wife actually know? We may never know. She claims she just knew about the plane ticket, which is enough. I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard situation. Um, I think she, I think their whole family is a victim of his as well though. And I do have some sympathy for them. Yeah. And I mean, just, he he makes everybody look bad yeah. at the end of the day. The police the police department, mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. Everybody is worse off because of him. It's just amazing how much he did over the years and really never thought it was gonna catch up to him. 
Yeah. I mean, why would you just keep doing it? It's so stupid. It's just unbelievable. Well, when you're getting away with community, stuff, like, all these kids, all these people who made donations, it's just such a sad situation all around. I think he had this overall assumption that like I'm above the law. Like everyone mm-hmm. loved him. He was known as like mm-hmm. hero police officer and you know someone who was so well respected that I think it kind of went to his head and his ego was just so inflated yeah. that it yeah. he felt invincible. Took, uh, he yeah, definitely got exactly. in over his head. I think he just over time I mean he rose up the ranks and then he was like this, mm-hmm. you know, with the chief at the time. And so mm-hmm. that's just a recipe for disaster. And if the chief is turning his head the other way, I mean that's ultimately the person who's going to hold him responsible for these things. Yeah. And if he's not doing it, then yeah, I mean he probably he definitely felt like he was sort of invincible Mm -hmm. and that's why he was also so angry when this village administrator comes in and comes in and is like i'm gonna audit your your department he's like oh nobody's ever audited me before so what the hell why are you coming after me and and really it's just a routine i mean it's just he he doesn't you know it seems like he just didn't really think through a lot of these things and just was like just i mean he screwed everyone he screwed everyone he screwed the whole police department pretty much Mm mm-hmm you know, all these donors, the whole community, his children, his wife, everyone. Yep. Almost, I mean, had this woman scared for her life. She was getting threatened, threats. And I mean, it's terrible. It's just terrible what and he just did. just the, the fact that he, you know, the, even right before he's he's going to take his own life, he's, he's, uh, he's already planning and thinking, I'm going to do like one last yeah. scam. Let me trick them all and try once to more. Like, right. And try to fool everybody, including... Yeah, very very experienced law enforcement professionals that I'm gonna stage my own murder. Yeah, it's and, so fucked up. And just like in order to just so that my family, I mean, I get why he did it, but like, I'm just, surprised that he actually thought he was gonna get away with it, knowing everything that he does after all the yeah. years of military training, all the years in the police force, to think that he was going to be able to pull that off and they wouldn't figure it out. Yeah, it's kind of shocking. It is shocking. Well, imagine, I mean. Imagine if they'd never, you know, they weren't able to figure out it was a suicide that they could, this case could still be like an an open, open case where they're still looking for these three suspects. Like, I'm just, I'm just like surprised that he. Or what if, what if some, someone was blamed for it? What if they ended up thinking it was somebody who didn't do it? Yeah. It's it's just the magnitude of that lie is so (laughs) unbelievable. And this community in Fox Lake is still trying to move on from this scandal. Joe will certainly be remembered, but he'll be remembered not for the man that he pretended to be, but for the man he really was. Definitely want to hear your feedback on this one, folks. We know you're going to have a lot of thoughts and opinions, so please share them below in the comments um, or tweet us and let us know what you think at Pod. Is it pod or podcast? It is pod, yeah. Pod. yeah okay, yeah. <laughs> just making sure. There's a lot of handles out there. I get confused. Uh, But thanks for joining us today. This was a very interesting one. Yeah, I've never never come across a case like this before. No, no. Especially involving a police officer staging his own murder like this. Pretty wild. It is. But yeah, we'll wrap up today's episode there. Make sure you follow us on Spotify. It's a really easy and free way to support the show. Mm -hmm. Also, check out the Black Friday sale, milehermerch.com. We will see you guys next time. Until then, keep taking your mind a mile mile high. Oh,